Ringer Dish is the place for all things celebrity, from major celebrity moments like the Met Gala and the Oscars, to the weird habits of the stars you love, to refreshers on the biggest tabloid stories from the last 20 years, Ringer Dish has all the vital details. On Tuesdays, catch Jam Session with Juliet Littman and Amanda Dobbins for Royal Family Rumors, Celebrity Real Estate, and Industry Analysis. And on Fridays, listen to Tea Time with me, Kate, and Amelia for lightning fast coverage on pressing celebrity news and gossip. Check out Ringer Dish on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. David, what's on your mind today? I am uh, coming at you live from a very uh, rather fancy hotel. And mm. let's, we'll just put it in the, the great state of Connecticut. Um Strange thing, though. So I walk in. I had this deja vu because I've actually been here. I came here for like a, a work, like a sales conference, like in a pre, like five careers ago, you know. So I knew exactly where it was. But it's this like plant-filled atrium lobby. It's incredible. It's like you know this giant. You know they have an immaculate pool. You know all this, all this space, and there's like a you know like a bar that's sitting in the middle of the atrium sort of like you know like a like a futuristic tiki hut and and you know it's just really cool place the rooms are great everything's perfect and then like we say like hey and i was like let's get let's get the kids ice cream sundays like that just feels like a very like hotel pseudo pseudo vacationy sort of thing to do right <laughs> yeah from both the 50s and 2021 yes exactly okay. and so and we're like so where's the restaurant and they're like oh well there's no restaurant i mean it's clearly we haven't reopened it yet post covid and i was like okay <laughs> That's cool. And then I'm meeting some people. I mean, actually, this is a work-related thing. So I'm like, I'm meeting some people. They were like, do you want to, do you want to just meet at the hotel afterwards so we can have a beer and go over this stuff? And I was like, yes, let's do that. There's no bar, and ever, nothing's open. And I realize that this is a. I know that this is like a like a nationwide problem. That that this is very, <laughs> and it's also very old man yells at clouds. I don't. Uh, first of all, if you're having trouble bringing people back to work, then like, you know, like good. Good. Maybe this will encourage some people to like raise the salaries of their minimum wage employees and and try to get, you know, try to re restructure the workforce in such a way. But in the meantime, doesn't that feel like a thing that you should know when you're making a reservation? Like, like yes, you can come to this fancy, expensive hotel, but there's no food or drink available to you. <laughs> or like, just put out a six pack in the lobby and just be like, take it if you want it. You know, <laughs> like sit in the chair and drink, have some of this wine. Like, it's just a very strange thing to be at a hotel, especially a hotel when you're not in like a, you know, a walking district of a downtown area. And, and you're just like, hey, what can I do for food? It's 9 p.m. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is the whole point of going to a hotel, even if it's for work. It's like, like, is there, do you ever go to a hotel and not on the way in think like, oh man, I bet the room service wings are great here. You know, <laughs> like I just can't, like it's, it's so nice to be able to wake up to like a carafe of coffee at a bacon, egg and cheese sandwich sitting outside your door, you know? And it's, it, it, I don't know. It's just, it's a little bit heartbreaking. This is David's message to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Reopen the hotel restaurant. <laughs> Do you remember? I kind of they're reopened. They just can't staff up. I don't know what the, it's, 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 you know, there's a bigger problem here, but still, yes, I miss it. I miss it. That's all. Remember when, before Yelp, when you'd go to the front desk of the hotel and say, hey, is there a place to eat around here? And they would have to do the obligatory, well, I'd recommend our restaurant. I wish they could recommend the restaurant, but yes, I do remember that. And yeah, then great. they would tell you like the actual good place down the yeah. street. You're the first person ever to defend hotel restaurants. Are you kidding me? Is there anything better than just being, just yes. sitting at, 
Well, okay, there is things better. But there is something incredibly (laughs) nice. There is something incredibly nice about having like that one beer that you wouldn't have had if you were a car right away, that last beer. and just Hotel bar, I feel that's a slightly different category. But yes, the hotel bar is immensely satisfying. Yeah, but I would rather have, I would rather have the sort of B plus B, or I'll say, let's just even say B minus like cheeseburger that at the hotel bar and then just do it in one, one shot, then, you know, if you're, if you're on a vacation with the intention of, if you're in an eating city, I'm not recommending that you go to the hotel bar in like Memphis, you know, and get your food there or, or New Orleans or, you know, wherever you're going to just like experience food culture. But if you're just there, if you're if you're at the hotel for the nice hotel, you know, they should be able to serve up the kids a hot fudge Sunday. That's all I'm saying. Next week, David is going to complain about the quality of the pretzels on Southwest Airlines. Not Don't what they used get me to be. Started. <laughs> There's no peanuts anymore. Why should I care about <laughs> someone else's allergies? <laughs> Coming up on today's show, we answer your listener mail questions about the Peyton Manning Monday night football broadcast, space porn for billionaires, and Addison Ray. Plus, Brian Raftery stops by to talk about his new Ringer podcast, Gene and Roger, about the great movie criticism TV show, Siskel and Ebert. All that and more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here, along with Erica Cervantes. We got listener mail, David, and I wanted to start with the big announcement from ESPN this week. After wooing and wooing and wooing Peyton Manning, by the way, wooing, kind of a great only in journalism word. After wooing Peyton Manning to be a football announcer for years, ESPN has finally landed a deal not only with Peyton Manning, but his brother, Eli Manning. They will be on the alternate Monday night football telecast starting this fall. They're going to do 10 games a year for the next three years. So you're going to have the regular announcers calling Monday Night Football on ESPN and then Peyton, Eli, and an announcer to be named later calling a separate feed on ESPN2 and perhaps ESPN streaming service as well. Are you going to watch the Peyton Manning, Manning Brothers alternate telecast? Well, I have a feeling I'll be watching it for the show. I would watch it out of, (laughs) out of, you know, some sort of fascination at the beginning. But the, but the notion that the Manning Brothers will be Calling an alternate version of the game does not would not necessarily steer my attention there on its own. What not about you? More, not more than I guess. Peyton Manning has been a guy that the networks have been trying to hire for a long time because he's famous and he's a good talker and he's in television commercials and stuff like that. I do think you bring us to a really interesting question, and Brent Anthony Collette sent this in about. Okay, we're in this era of the mega cast. We have a call of the game, and then we have another call of the game, and then maybe we have another call of the game. And and it used to be hard to do this, but now once Thursday Night Football is on Amazon and Monday Night Football is on ESPN+, Mm -hmm. you should be able to just change the channel and hear the announcers you want to do. So that's kind of interesting on one level, but my my question is, how many more people are going to watch a football game because the Mannings are calling a second telecast. Well, that's the thing, right? It's like, you're not paying them like, 
how can you how can you even argue that you're paying them like a, a salary that uh, that would be wouldn't it be more valuable to put them on the B game on Sundays to on like a, a for for a, a broadcast that like some portion of the public is going to be forced to watch like this is going to go on regardless rather than putting them paying them a, a ton of money to be on an alternate thing now, I don't you're right I like the idea of an alternate thing. I mean, being able to hear the announcers you want. But if Peyton and Eli Manning are worth $10 million or whatever the number is, do we know the number? Did you, do we already say the number? If the, I don't, let, I don't have it. Let's just say hypothetically, hand. if Peyton and Eli Manning are worth $10 million to do an alternate Monday Night Football broadcast, then like, how, how much money are we worth? Could we get like half a mil? To, I mean, we could like, like, can we do the ringer? Not just us. We get Bill Simmons and the ringer does an alternate telecast of the Monday Night Football. I mean, wouldn't that be worth like 10% of what the Manning brothers are making at least like if if it's, if the, if you can justify spending money to lure viewers away from your other telecast like does it isn't anything possible i don't know it just seems sort of wild yeah i mean it's it's a great point i mean it's it's kind of wonderful for consumers for people who actually watch television which are mostly the people i am concerned about so we you're giving me lots of different ways to experience this game. That's cool, right? That's a good thing, whether the Manning telecast turns out to be good or not. But you're right. I do I do wonder, is like at some level, are you just saying, are you going to grow the 11 million-ish, I think that's the number of people who watch Monday Night Football every week? Or are you just going to take that 11 million people and divide it into two parts, where 8 million go one way or 3 million go the other way? And the value of... This three now maybe that three million dollar broadcast becomes more valuable and the ads. I I don't I don't quite understand that, but I do wonder about it. You did also bring us to my second point. Why didn't you just hire Peyton Manning as an announcer to announce Monday Night Football or any other football game? Ah, that's a great question. They tried that, and you know I saw a lot of people tweeting this week. ESPN finally got Peyton Manning. They got their white whale after all this time. Well, they sort of got Peyton Manning. But if you look closely at this, what ESPN is doing is not hiring Peyton Manning as an announcer where he has to go to all the games and do the research, right? Interview the coaches where they can produce him. ESPN has ended up as a co-producer of Peyton Manning content, which is different. So if you look at this alternate telecast, it is it is produced, co-produced by Omaha Productions. And I think I think that is is really interesting because it's almost like you know how there's this Peyton's places on ESPN Plus right now. Mm-hmm. There's this whole feeling that with certain stars of a certain level, they don't want to go work it for ESPN. Yeah, they see ESPN as a vessel to produce what they want to produce. So they're not Chris Collinsworth. They're more like Kobe Bryant when he was alive and doing detail. They're like Peyton Manning doing this alternate telecast. You're not going to get me on the road 17 weeks a year, but if you want to be the co-producer of my show and I can take my thing and put it on your network, now I'm interested. Mm-hmm. Now I want to be in business with you. How many how many former, you know, sports stars have said over the years in interviews and print or audio or whatever like I just didn't see myself as, you know, being a being a TV guy. Well, what they meant implicitly was like, I'm not going to give up my like swanky life to be a road warrior doing you know? the work I, to be a yeah. TV guy. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, there, 
there was a Troy, Troy Eggman was on Flying Coach, one of the great ringer podcast not too long ago, talking about the kind of difficulty he had in reconciling himself to becoming a color commentator full time. And a lot of it, I mean, there's a lot of really, really obvious justifications when it comes to family and stuff like that. He actually got to, you know, reconcile to himself in the reverse way because he got to spend so much time at home and only had to be totally gone a couple of days a week. Then it, then it worked for him. But it hits, it cuts both ways, right? And it's not, and you're right. It is a lot of work too, not just when you're on the road. It's a lot of work. This is a, this is a sort of, I don't know if it's a no strings version of that job of the, of the of the you know traditional color commentary job, but it is a there's certainly fewer strings, and there's like an announcer to be named later as part of this package deal, right? So it like the 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 amount of work that one has to do is really up in the air because you could hire one or pr presumably more people who are just going to carry 10% of the load or like 80% of the load. So, you know, there's, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of, there are a lot of variables in play here and you're right. Why, why be negotiating a salary when you can be negotiating back in, right. Or just taking back in, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a totally different sort of calculus for someone on Peyton Manning's level. Totally. It's owner, it's ownership or co-ownership. And I, it's, it's to me, it's almost more like, what LeBron James is doing with uninterrupted than it is what Chris Collinsworth is doing on Sunday night football. Mm -hmm. And the caveat is that only is going to work for a certain level of mega, mega, mega star. Like I don't think Julian Edelman could come to ESPN and dictate the terms like this. <laughs> They'd be like, eh, you know, do we, do we want the Julian Edelman show? Like, I, I don't know. You, we, we, we might be interested in having you come in and work for well, us as a commentator and be on get up. But there's a certain athlete now that's just like, eh, I don't want to do this. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, I, th I agree. I do think it's interesting, though, to think about it because the, the way that this is obviously very different than the the trails blazed by LeBron and Kobe is that this is a an established property that they are now attaching yes. themselves to, right? True. And I think that is going to, I think people will be probably be looking back on this as, as as that sort of an important moment in time because I think we will see. I mean, we'll probably see now that the door's open. Is LeBron gonna not going to try to attach himself to doing to having the LeBron version of the NBA Finals after he's retired or even before he's retired? You know, I mean, is is this? I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of you know dominoes that could fall after this, and it, frankly, you know. You're right. There's some people that wouldn't have this sort of bargaining power that, you know, the same power that the Mannings did. But I mean, you know, nobody they wouldn't have they also wouldn't have given like Pat McAfee this opportunity when he was the kicker for the Colts or whatever. But like when he's but now someone like Pat McAfee would be ideal for a thing like this. Right. I mean, how many viewers could he get watching the alternate feed? So I do think that there's I mean, if we're like I said this at the beginning at the top, it's long if we're if we're handing out money for alternate feeds. <laughs> that are potentially cannibal, you know, going to cannibalize our own viewership. There are a lot. There are a lot of interesting ways we could go. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting moment for a lot of. As you say, there are dominoes left to fall here. But before we move on, though, one idea: if we really want to boost the Monday Night Football ratings because they could use it, wouldn't you be more interested if every week Peyton and Eli just were the quarterbacks for the opposing teams, just no, <laughs> no matter who it was? The two Manning brothers have to suit up and do and make the most of the situation. That'd be really funny. Yes, and that, I would watch that extremely unlikely television production. Where the Mannings <laughs> are playing quarterback against each other for the team. It's the Manning Bowl every week. Every I mean, week. that was such a big deal in the time. 
Um, <laughs> Archie Archie Manning up in the up in the box, just like looking on. Yeah, okay. I get a text from David uh, over the course of the week about what we should talk about on the press box, and this week I got one that said we got to talk about billionaire <laughs> space porn because I think David has been watching <laughs> CNN, MSNBC. No, this, both. It started off with MSNBC. God love them. But it wasn't just that it, okay, let me take a step back. We are actually a bit too young, as old as we are compared to most of the people who probably know what a podcast is. We're probably a bit too young to have the like abject fascination with the space race that Agreed. many of the people who are like producers and talking heads on the in the cable news networks do. It's where you, one of the few ways that you really feel like a dramatic divide between you and I and the people who are like five years older than us, right? And and you see it at moments like this when like Jeff Bezos sends a giant penis into space and everybody <laughs> is just like falling over themselves to ooh and ah about it. Now listen, it's cool. I mean, uh, as far as like the, in, the like the giant achievements of mankind that go, I mean, listen, uh, maybe it's just you know unrealistic expectations but i kind of feel like with unlimited money you and i could probably put a rocket into space maybe i'm wrong you know but like <laughs> if, you, if you're if you just have if there's nothing if, if you know money is literally no object we'll probably figure it out so and you know there's you know, the state of texas is doing them a lot of favors and everything else but setting the science aside who knows i mean if we're gonna put all of our industrial waste into space like he like jeff says or you know we're just gonna this is gonna be like a big texas space tourism industry i mean who knows but it's just the coverage of it was bonkers like it was it was they were like singing hosannas from the newsroom about this billionaire sending four people up and it wasn't even space it was like a little bit higher than an airplane and back right i mean and and, and I, I don't mean to make this a bit but like the fact that they had to, on MSNBC, they had to keep asking themselves the rhetorical question about whether or not it was worth it, right? Like the, the announcers would like throw to Stephanie Rule and just be like, well, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are probably saying, if these guys pay no taxes, then why are they, how do they have all this money to build a rocket and shoot it into space? And Stephanie Rule was like, that's a valid question, but it's legal. That's what you got to keep saying. They're not breaking any laws. <laughs> and what they're doing here is really amazing. And it's just like, all right, man. Like, I don't know. I Like, I don't need to. I don't. I guess I just don't need a live feed to like every billionaire losing his using his trillions of dollars to just sort of like fulfill childhood fantasies. It's it's fun sometimes, but. I just I have a hard time reconciling that to being just like a great achievement of mankind. It's like, you know, we all, you know, the, the coronavirus paid for this rocket ship, right? All the packages that we had direct shipped to our doors because of a pandemic or what's paying to put this thing into space. And we're going to act like he like, you know, he found the the fountain of youth or something. It's just he, he shot a rocket into space. Let's just talk about something else. Journalists do this thing where they get really excited when they get to cover or celebrate something that their predecessors did, but they never got to do. Oh, yeah. Okay. I like so, that. you know, we hear the political writers all the time, man, what if it's a brokered convention? Just like David Brinkley got to do way back whenever he covered his first <laughs> convention. And it's always this idea that maybe this thing that exists in this world of the past and of romance 
and a fedoras, maybe I'll get to do that too. I feel there's a little bit of this in the space thing. Yes. We we missed the big moments. We missed Apollo, but damn it, we got Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. So we're going to treat it the same way. We're going to get as excited as we would have gotten in the glory days of the space race. There's something to that here. Did you also see the Bezos soundbite that was well-traveled? This is from the Today Show. Erica, can we play the Bezos soundbite? Amid the celebrations, Bezos is facing backlash, though, for this comment. I want to thank uh, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this. <laughs> there was a really big overworked Twitter joke this week that the moment that Jeff Bezos went into space, that was a good time for all Amazon workers to finally take a break. Right? <laughs> Been working at this at this hard, hard, hard job, and oh, wait, oh wait, the boss is in space or former boss. Now I can now I can finally get that break I've deserved. Mm. Uh, it is funny. Uh, can we talk about Addison Ray, David? Yeah, fill me in er- on this. Like, so I was only paying very vague attention here. Erica reminded reminded us we need to talk about this. So did you watch the UFC fight? Yeah. yeah. On July 10th, Conor McGregor, by the way, one of the great sideline reporter-ish moments of all time when Joe Rogan interviewed McGregor after he broke his leg. <laughs> He's just sitting there with a broken. I don't remember Joe Theismann giving an interview on the field after he <laughs> broke his leg. No. no. Maybe, maybe I'm forgetting. Anyway, Addison Ray is a 20-year-old TikTok star. And on July 10th, the day of this fight, she posts a picture of herself on the UFC red carpet holding a microphone. And she tweets this. I studied broadcast journalism in college for three whole months to prepare for this moment. Everybody got really, really mad. People that are studying broadcasting who have studied broadcasting and thought, wait a second, she is trolling us. Right? She's, she's saying that we work so hard to try to get a job like doing interviews at a big UFC event. She did not. She was a TikTok star, and now she is she's rubbing our faces in that fact. So that was like a thing on Twitter for a couple of hours. And then, and I saw Taylor Lorenz tweet this, and I think I retweeted her. The like, you know, there is this thing like that is that is not cool, but at the same time, TV networks have been hiring famous people to sit in on sporting events since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. Didn't we just have Snoop Dogg call a boxing match? Yeah. Like 10 minutes ago. So while we might rather that go to that actual, you know, that broadcast journalist who's been working on the craft and is going to ask good questions, all that stuff. This is just part of sports television. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that every sporting event you see, especially when you go talk about boxing and UFC with like the crowds are right there, you can see the, you know, celebrities sitting in the front rows, you know, like the NBA games always like focus in on Jack and, you know, Denzel and all those guys, the Lakers games. Do you think that they would be, do you think that the, that any announced team, that any network would refuse Denzel Washington the opportunity to come down and call <laughs> the five minutes of the game? Like, do, so, we, do you, so we got the Manning cast and now we got the Denzel cast? I'm just saying, it's what's well, it's an interesting parallel, but like, like no nobody is going to, I understand why this is getting under people's skin, and I, so maybe I'm being a little bit deliberately obtuse about it, but like, no, there's no broadcast, there's no, there's no network area sports broadcast that would say no to a major celebrity being minorly involved in the presentation. 
I was looking back through my uh, voluminous uh, files about announcers, and I, I realized that Jason Priestley was involved in calling the Indy Hockey. 500. Oh, no, the Indy 500. Oh, yeah, because he got into racing a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. he Did Did he have a hockey moment, too? Well, He's friends with hockey players. What was he? What was his thing? As a, I believe, oh, is as he a Canadian? Canadian? As, yeah. as a Canadian actor, <laughs> I believe it's in his, it's in his contract that he get to ice skate on television. It's, it's like they, man, the degree to which those Canadian actors can, can play hockey is just, it's, they're, they're better at that. We should be American, like soccer should be looking at the way they train hockey players in Canada because everybody can play. So he was, oh, yeah, okay, so he had, he had a hockey thing, too. So anyway, back to Addison Ray. There was this big backlash, and then Addison Ray tweets, never mind, y'all got me fired. So everybody's saying, wait a second. She was hired to call, she was hired to be a part of the UFC event. She tweeted about it. Everybody got mad, and now she's been fired. Well, it turns out this was a statement to Insider from ESPN Addison did some interviews with us for UFC 264. However, she is not a full-time employee with UFC. So it turns out that Addison Ray was there because one of the fighters was from the same city in Louisiana that she is. This is, again, according to Insider. She did an interview. It appeared on ESPN's TikTok, and that was her, that was her involvement. But not clear <laughs> that she was fired or if in fact, in fact just completed what she had set out to do. I don't know. I just, just a funny, just a very, it's just very a weird. Funny. It's just a very strange situation. And, and we may never know what really, <laughs> when really happened, but we know people got to complain. So that's, that's kind of what matters. Do you want some only in journalism words before we do the overworked Twitter joke here? Oh, please. Yeah. Okay. By the way, we got at some point, one or both of us needs to sit down and actually make the list from all these episodes because I'm still getting them. And I can't remember if we've already had them, like for instance, do have we already had Firebrand? I think we have, but if not, <laughs> put that on the list. We might have already had Firebrand. Uh, it is still on the list. Winnow uh, came up today. Winnow, I thought that was really good. Bedevil. Mm -hmm. Oh, Bedevil's good. Kind of an old. But that's fashioned. also old. Yeah, is old fashioned a separate category? Because we certainly use words in writing that have that are outmoded, sort of. But like, are they? If they, just because they're from another era, does that make mean they're they're never used in speech? I don't know. That's that's a tough one. The Yankees bedeviled the Red Sox today before a crowd of twenty thousand at Yankee Stadium. I could you could see that in the old newsreel. Uh, this was a great one. Want W O N T. Oh yeah, Oof. and it's especially important to me because my first ever article at the New Republic, an editor inserted the word want into my copy. Mm -hmm. the phrase as is his want i believe so that was and i and i'm pretty sure i didn't know what want meant but i was really happy because it made my it made my story really stink really well, sing quick sidebar about want because I, i've certainly used want in my own writing but is can you use the word want that's not in the construction of as was his or her want <laughs> i suppose so but i don't know but that like, i've ever <laughs> seen it that I'm, way i'm looking at it right now there's an arcade. no you could say as he is want to do oh want to do right right so, so those are the two ways but like if, if they always come in a certain construction i think that sort of exposes itself but well anyway we'll we'll, we'll think more about it a few more beleaguered mm -hmm. uh install as as with human beings 
like he has been installed as the general manager of the Yankees. That's a pretty good one. I don't think anybody says that in real life. Stint to describe a length of time, his stint with the Mets. Uh, and I really like this one, Scion. Scion. Oh, yeah. Also, if, you, if you're if you at kind of a high-flown publication, you can use like paterfamilias. <laughs> good, only in journalism word that I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody say. Anyway, thank you for all these. We need to make a comprehensive list because I think we're getting into, into repeats at this point. All right, David, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received piggybacking off that space talk. When Jeff Bezos blasted off, David, it was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Congrats to Elon Musk, the richest person on earth. <laughs> Get it? Cause he was still, he was off the planet. Thanks to David Uberti for that one. Weird tweet this week, David. From- wait, what is that? Wait, wait, is there, you know, there's all those myths about like, uh, what's it called? Like the open seas laws. Like when you can, like you can. Yeah. Does that count when you find for like outer tre- space? When you find like treasure ships and things like that. There, is there no law when you're in outer space? There has to be some law, right? Yeah. Like if, but what like would if, you find? Like if Bezo, if Jeff had like murdered his brother when they were in outer space, if this had been part of a long-standing plan, does he get international waters law? Like it's hey, hey, nobody has any jurisdiction over me up here. I'm gonna I'm gonna push back that that is actually the law of international waters that you can just <laughs> be free to murder people. You're right. I'm probably totally wrong about that. A weird tweet this week, David, from U.S. Representative Andy Biggs, a Republican from Arizona. Andy Biggs was trying to score some border hawk points, and he tweeted, under Joe Biden, enough fentanyl to kill 238 million Americans was seized at the southern border last month. Where's the outrage in the media? It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, read your tweet again slowly. It was seized at the southern border. That's <laughs> what supposed to happen. Thanks to Scott Tobias for that one. Uh, in lieu of tweets, David, Donald Trump is still issuing statements. One of these statements said, if I was going to do a coup, one of the last people I would want to do it with is General Mark Milley. That is the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, if I did it. By the way, <laughs> thanks to Summer of Dad, how, how many people have actually read if I did it versus people that have made jokes about if I did it over the years? That's a great question. Is it, do you think there's a, is there a, is there a deeper obligation to read if, I, I mean, it came so long after all that stuff. And it was like, I mean, you could probably ask the general question, like of all of the ghost written, <laughs> like Regan Arthur books that came out in those, like in that decade or two, like how many of the, how many people have actually read all that? Well, I mean, I guess some people have probably read a lot, but yes, nobody's read if I did it. I think that's fair to say. I remember like a really funny New Yorker talk of the town item with the ghost writer of if I did it. I don't remember. I don't remember what the punchline was, but I remember it being good. I think I think uh, Jeffrey Goldberg wrote it. All right, David. And finally, remember Gilgamesh? Probably not a question you expected this morning. Remember Gilgamesh from high school? The Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the greats. This was a tweet from the account Archaeological Photography. Uh, A new chapter of the Epic of Gilgamesh is revealed when the fragment of Tablet 5 was finally recovered. It was written in standard Babylonian and dates back to the Neo-Babylonian period. A new chapter of the Epic of Gilgamesh. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, New Gilgamesh just dropped. 
Or we would have also <laughs> accepted the new epic of Gilgamesh drop before George R.R. R. Martin's The Winds of Winter. Thanks to Steve Sademan and Mitchell Tyler. If you made David and I remember Gilgamesh, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, in the notebook dump, we are joined today by Brian Raftery, excellent movie writer, author of The Best Movie Year Ever. That is a book. And now the auteur behind a new long-form Ringer podcast, Gene and Roger, about the iconic, seminal, movie-arguing duo Siskel and Ebert. Brian, welcome to the Press Box. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. All right. So you're going to see that David and I have very big memories, very big takes about Siskel and Ebert as an (laughs) artifact of our youth. But for people who may be a tad younger than us, how would you describe Siskel and Ebert to someone who never saw the show? Wow, you know, I think it's 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 the it's the way you everyone who's young argues now, except in person, <laughs> and and the arguments end after five minutes, and they're only about movies, but they're also about how everyone feels about each other. I mean, they were like, you know, for people my age, these were the first two. This was the first conflict I saw in popular culture was Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert arguing with one another because when I grew up, mm-hmm. you know, watching eighties TV. You didn't see these kind of big, you know, fights. You, you didn't see the grown-ups get out of control on television. And every week, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert would sit down. They would have five, sometimes six movies. They would go through them for about three or four minutes each. And they were longtime rivals who became TV stars together. And they had all this kind of beneath-the-surface tension when they talked about, you know, a movie like Anaconda. Um, and for <laughs> someone like me, it was... It was, you know, when I when I first started watching them, I was really young. I mean, like seven or eight. I think I just liked watching, like I said, grown-ups fight on TV. Um, but when I got older, I, you know, Cisco and Eber for a lot of people, including myself, this was sort of in the pre-internet era, how you learn to think about movies. You know, I I learned the I heard the word cinematography on Cisco and Eber for the first time. I, you know, I realized you could disagree with someone and still remain civil with them through Cisco and Eber. So they were they were remarkably influential on people my age in terms of popular culture and thinking about it. But what's kind of funny now is that I'm still seeing young people share Siskel and Ebert YouTube videos. It's like, it's like they're still, they haven't reviewed movies in 25 years and they're still relevant. What they think about, you know, aliens or platoon, people are still discussing today. It's true. You know, it's funny the way that you talk about how they kind of shaped the way that we think. And there, there was a sort of monoculture just in terms of the way that we learn film criticism. What kind of mm. struck me reading and, and listening to, to, to your, your podcast so far is how my perception of them when I was a kid was, is exactly the same perception everybody else had too, right? That there was a sort of like monoculture perception of Siskel and Ebert, that I wasn't just, I had a favorite or whatever. But so describe their contrasting personalities a little bit, again, for the uninformed and the sort of, <laughs> and the sort of well, film archetypes that they occupied uh, themselves. I think, you know, Roger Ebert, who I think because he obviously lived longer than Gene and had a very big, you know, sort of Twitter imprint until he passed away, and who is better known, I think. But he is a little more of a film scholar, um, at times a little more soft-spoken, whereas Gene, who loved movies, but was sort of, uh, I could say he could be a little more persnickety. I think he expected and hoped for more from movies sometimes than Roger did. I think Roger sometimes could be a little more forgiving. But, you know, Gene was very good <laughs> at pushing back at Roger when with a couple of good one-liners or, you know, one of my favorite reviews and we open the whole show is is with is rocky four where gene 
who hates sequels, loves Rocky Four. Roger just starts going off on how much he hates it. And Gene, one of Gene's go, you know, sort of default argument modes is he just starts saying no, no, over and over again <laughs> to every point Roger makes. And that is, I mean, I love the way they both argue. And I've employed both sides of that kind of the gentle wait, you mean you didn't see this, what I see kind of way? And then there's more, no, no. Like the disbelief that the person you're talking to didn't see this movie the same way you did. Um, But, you know, they were also very unpredictable over the years. I really tried when I started the podcast. I I was thinking to myself, I'm going to know by the end what's a Gene movie, what's a Roger movie without having to look up how they voted. And I'm always wrong. I can never predict how they're going to land on a movie. I think too, and you, you, you fasten on this in the podcast is it's really important that they were print guys and that they looked like print guys because it did give them, in addition to knowing that they were movie critics, just the way they looked on television in the eighties and nineties gave them a certain credibility. Did it not? Like these are not, you know, our blow dried person on the local news who I don't really trust at all, but, but these guys wearing their sweaters (laughs) yeah. <laughs> looking a <laughs> little glasses. frumpy in their own various ways. They must know about movies. Yeah, I mean, they they looked like my dad, who was a newspaper guy. I mean, they looked very much like someone who you could sort of talk to in the lobby after a movie and you or you maybe listen listen in as they talked. They did not seem like you're right. They didn't seem like kind of blow-dried, you know, these kind of empty TV news anchor shells, but they also didn't seem like very highfalutin you know, Kaidu Cinema New Yorker guys. They just seemed like very, they seemed like guys you would talk to at a mo- about a movie at a bar or that you would sit close to to try to hear what they were saying at a bar. And I think that was so key to people feeling, you know, welcome to watch their show. I mean, I think they, film was in the 60s and 70s was so highly regarded as like America's great art form once again. And, and I think people were a little intimidated to sort of talk about it sometimes. And Siskel and Ebert were really, you know, they did not have, you did not get a sense of, of show-offiness from them. They were very smart, but I don't think they kind of lorded it over the viewers. I think they lorded it over each other sometimes, but never over the viewers. So there's a lot of things that go into making a show like this, the phenomenon that it is, and you've decided some of them. But if you had, to, I mean, you described some of them, but if you had to break it down between the percentage of what degree it's like, the presentation, I mean, the personality, and what degree it's just like, the just the, the physical affect of the, of them going, the unlikeliness of them. I mean, what do you think it is that really caught everybody's attention just from the moment the show started? I think it was the relationship between them. And one of the people I spoke with was Tom Shales from the Washington Post. And he had a really good point that as much as people love movies, when the show started, there wasn't a huge demand for film criticism on TV. You know, it, it wasn't even the most widely read part of the newspaper, but as he pointed out, they made it work because they sort of turned it into a soap opera. And you did, even if you had, did not care about any of the movies they were reviewing within a certain week, you absolutely wanted to watch them and their personal dynamic and see if they argued, see if they got along. You always wanted to check in, you know, like, let's see how Gene and Roger are doing this week. Because it did feel like a relationship that you were sort of invested in because you wound up getting addicted to them for so many years. And I do think, you know, ultimately they, they went through some years where the movies weren't great. They went through some years where maybe people were shifting their attention from movies to TV or or things were changing in terms of how we consume and talked about film. But people always wanted to see what Gene and Roger thought. And I think that it ultimately comes down to their personalities. I mean, they were very smart and they had great opinions and they were very articulate. But I do think people just felt personally invested in how are Gene and Roger getting along this week. I'd add one more thing, David, to Brian's list, which most viewers wouldn't know. But that is newsroom angst is what we were seeing. (laughs) Yes. 
like back when we had newsrooms, here, here is the conversation in every newsroom, including the ringer. That guy who has my job at the competing publication, he sucks. Right. Just, and let me tell you how much he sucks compared to me. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, and then when you get finished with that, you know, that person that works at my same publication, he also sucks. That That's a different <laughs> conversation. But what to me, what they were doing was taking that newsroom <laughs> shit talk that we hear that you hear all the time and they were just bringing it to the screen. Yeah. And I think people forget, you know, they started out in the mid in the mid 70s and it really took off in the late 70s and early 80s. But newspaper columnists, I mean, I knew who all the local newspaper columnists were in in my town because they were some of the most heavily promoted personalities at a newspaper. And, you know, Gene and Gene and Roger were at competing Chicago papers that were like, you know, I don't know, 10 minute walks from one another. It's, it was a very <laughs> it was a very deeply felt rivalry in a newspaper town that, you know, deeply felt rivalries are a big part of Chicago culture. So, you know, it, that all kind of came across on the screen. And I, and I do think that was a huge part of, you know, that angst really does play out with their kind of back and forth over the years. I mean, it, it got better. I mean, they, they definitely became friends in their final years together and, and sort of found a way to, to kind of soften their relationship. But yeah, in those early years, the two of them, they, they, they were very different guys and they did very different personalities. But the feeling was genuine. You know, because we see oh, a lot of television yeah. today where you go argue with that person, but they really felt like you are an inferior film critic to me, and I am going to tell the national TV audience that fact every week. Yeah, I think I think they <laughs> certainly felt that way about one another. And I know, you know, and Gene, you know, Rod, when they started the show, Roger had won the first Pulitzer for film criticism. You know, no one had done that at that point, and that's a huge, you know, imbalance that I'm sure affected the sort of ego interplay between the two of them, because you're sitting across from the guy who has your job, but he also has a Pulitzer. I mean, that's going to add to that angst quite a bit, I think, especially in the mid seventies. When they, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Both of you are right about the way they interacted. And Brian, you said, or Raph, Brian, you said at the beginning that uh, there was a, you know, that we didn't see this much on TV. I'm trying to think back. I mean, it does seem like, you know, people would talk about, would try to read behind the, vague less than satisfied expressions of johnny carson at times to like you know right. see, to, to like put some sort of personification to to whatever they thought they were seeing on on the screen but you're right i mean and and it's and it's not like tv today right i mean the the stuff we see on you know our on on news news and sports shows is, is closer to you know archie bunker than it is to to at the movies but that back and forth pitter patter the newsroom angst as Brian said, is is uh is I think you know such a huge part of it, and they you know they ended up, I mean they took it is it basically a road show, you know they would go on the Tonight Show just to sort of yeah. go back and forth, right? I mean this is this is what people wanted to see. Yeah, and I think that why it worked is because when you look at stuff, you know certainly they weren't the first two people to debate on TV, but when you look at stuff like you know Point Counterpoint, which was sixty minutes, really big segment where they would have two talking heads, it's it's very scripted. Um, and with Siskel and Ebert, they would, you know, they would go see a movie together sometimes, and then they would just part ways. They would not talk about how they felt about a movie until the cameras were rolling. Um, so what you get is, is basically their sort of really first response. And a lot of times, sometimes it was an argument and it, it certainly felt like, you know, it was very, very unscripted. And I think, um, some of the shows that came after Siskel, Siskel and Ebert, where they would have two film critics talking those feel much more scripted to me. With Gene and Roger, whether it was The Tonight Show or whether it was their own show, it never felt planned out. It ne I mean, when you see one of them 
looking, you know, shooting a look of complete disdain or surprise, there's opinions. That's not take five. That's that's the first take. And it seems very genuine. You mentioned, Brian, in the pod that there was no Twitter hive mind about movies in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. To what extent was there any hive mind with Pauline Kale and her brood, you know, kind of a kind of a general take on a particular movie or director that was out in the world? To what to what extent did that exist during that period? It's tough because it's we think so much of these sort of movies that came out in the 70s and 80s as having a critical consensus behind them from the moment. And when you look back, there was a lot more um, dissent among the print critics among certain big movies. So I think there was a little bit of a scattered hive mind. And obviously someone like Pauline Kael had her own kind of acolytes is a whole other sort of satellite. Um, but I think, you know, the closest we had to like sort of a big pop cultural sort of movie hive mind was probably still the Oscars at that point, where in the 80s, I certainly remember the 80s Oscars was sort of like, okay, these are the important movies. These are the ones we all agree are good, whether they're nominated or whether they win. And I think, you know, one thing that I loved about, um, Gene and Rogers, they would do these Oscar specials where they, and, and, you know, obviously everyone does them now. I mean, they sort of go on all year now as Oscar debates. But back then, having two really big critics look at each nomination and go, no, this isn't who should win. This is who should win. This is the category they should be doing, you know, better things with. This is the kind of blind spots they have. Um, I think that was probably, I think sort of talking back to the Academy, even in the 80s, was kind of a pushback to whatever we think of as a hive mind back then in terms of how movies are thought about. That's interesting. What is it in terms of the way that they went at each other? And you're right. I mean, you, you talked about um, Burt Reynolds at one point, how how <laughs> how, the, how a thumbs down could end his career or whatever. I mean, I think th those are the sorts of people who, at least in my imagination, were sort of scarred most by the advent of Siskel and Ebert, right? Because there are some movies that it wasn't just the great movies where we're quibbling over degrees of greatness, right? It's the sort of middle brow of movies that are suddenly like getting knocked around in a way they hadn't been before. Is that, a, is that the right way of looking at it? I think so. I mean, I think Roger would later say that, you know, sort of much to his chagrin that you really couldn't stop people from going to see the biggest Burt Reynolds movie when it was opening that weekend, back when Burt Reynolds movies were a big thing. You really, it was very hard. I think they felt at a certain point in the eighties that the PR machine, which had just basically come down to here's a big star, big movie, go see it opening night, I think they had really started to push back against that. It's just Gene and Roger, because I think they felt that, you know, there was no real guidance for moviegoers. And I think those middlebrow movies, it was the first time that people were sort of poking back at them in a big way. There's a really great moment where, um, and I don't want to spoil episode three, but, you know, why not? Um, there's a great moment on The Tonight Show with Chevy Chase, where they start talking about one of Chevy's movies, and Roger does not like it, and the audience just goes whoa like this is a big deal not only because it's awkward to watch roger ebert you know make fun of chevy chase while he's sitting next to him but also it was considered kind of like wait why would you uh who cares about three amigos are these the kind of movies we should really sort of think about more critically now and really kind of say no this is not good like we, we need to start make better movies and i think they were very much as you said they were very much as much as they loved a lot of middlebrow stuff i think they were reacting at a certain point to the way the 80s kind of big movie star system had kind of polluted Hollywood for a couple of years. They they did not like the 80s. They were not really happy during the 80s. What's interesting about though is when, you know, as you go through the whole Ebert archive, which is, as you say, has wonder, been wonderfully available and has given him this whole kind of second, you know, sort of half of his career, you know, both both during his life and then and then after he passed away, you will find that four-star review for Dances with Wolves in the Ebert archive. Right. <laughs> 
you will find the four star review for Forrest Gump. <laughs> right. Yeah. He could be, he was a great critic and I loved reading him, but he could be sort of conventionals, you know, an insult to Roger Ebert, but he would often, you know, like that down the middle Oscar movie. As you say in this podcast, Gene Siskel was completely off on his own a lot of the yeah. time. Like he, he, what, what were the old you, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in Chinatown? He panned. Yeah, he didn't love him. He didn't love him. Yeah. So he was, he was just, we think when we think of Gene Siskel, and I'm not sure I've ever actually read a Gene Siskel review in full. But was he just completely operating on, you know, to his own, to his own beat? I think, you know, Gene's really fascinating. And I think in a sense, yeah, I, I do believe that he, he was, he did not see himself as a contrarian. I really genuinely believe that when he gave Silence of the Lambs a bad review or when he gave, you know, um, I think it was Breakin, the breakdancing movie, a good review. I think he's being completely <laughs> sincere. I think sometimes he... And I think this is one of the things I learned from about talking about movies from watching Gene Siskel is that it was okay to demand a little bit better from a movie. Um, and he could sometimes pick up on one or two small aspects of a movie that drove him crazy and he would give it a thumbs down. And Roger, I think, sometimes would be a little more forgiving of those flaws. Um, but they're they're both completely unpredictable and they both love Forrest Gump. I mean, there was a lot of really big mainstream movies that they loved. And that's fine by me because I loved a lot of those. I did not love Forrest Gump, but I loved a lot of those mainstream movies as well. Um, but what's so interesting is when you read their reviews or watch their, watch their clips when they talk about these movies, you really do believe I mean, you never doubt how they feel. And and to their credit also, Gene especially would go back and revisit movies. I mean, he went, I mean, he, I mean, Apocalypse Now was sort of a 20, 30 year odyssey of its own where it took Gene a long time to really kind of fully embrace it. But he would go back and look at other movies. And he, I mean, he did go back and re-review Rogers Beyond the Valley of the Dolls movie in the 90s, which he, which he still hated. <laughs> but at least he would kind of go back and give movies another shot. I think, I think he had a real curiosity of, you know, what did I miss the first time around? What did you learn about them as as human beings? Like before they were famous, before they were before they were on TV, that 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 you that that helped you understand how they became the public figures, the public characters that they were. You know, with Rogers, so much of his life was known, but I think one thing that you know, Steve James did this great documentary, Life Itself, and Roger wrote his memoir. But I think it was it wasn't until I sort of watched a few clips of him really talking about his childhood because he grew up as an only child and in, in a very small town in Illinois. And, you know, he loved science, you know, he wrote his own science fiction stories and he loved, you know, his own newspapers. And I never sort of connected how much of the work he did was sort of um, escapism for him. And I think especially movies were his way of really looking at the bigger world and, and thinking about what it was like to be, you know, eight or nine or 10 or even a teenager and watching you know, a Truffaut movie when you're still in kind of a small place and, and having the world kind of open up to you. And I think sometimes that does kind of explain why Roger still had this kind of um, wonder about movies up until, you know, until he passed away. I mean, he really, I, I do think he would sit down in a theater and just no matter who made the movie, even if it was a Rob Schneider film or someone he liked, it didn't like, I think he really would sit down and be like, I, I'm, I'm open to being amazed by this experience. Because I think that was his relationship to movies as a child. Uh, I think they really transported him. Um, and I think for Gene, you know, Gene had a very um, tough childhood. You know, he lost both his parents when he was very young. And I think for me, the most fun thing about Gene is his absolute, I always knew that he loved Saturday Night Fever. You know, that is his favorite movie. He famously bought 
John Travolta's white suit from Saturday Night Fever. He outbid Jane Fonda to get it. He saw the movie on his honeymoon. He, he always said he saw it 17 times but I, in the theater, but I'm sure it was more. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, Marlene Glitzen, Jane's wife, gave me some audio of him talking to Travolta in 1980 about Saturday Night Fever. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's not like the Chris Farley SNL sketches where it's him sitting out with Paul McCartney, but it's like, this is the biggest fan of a movie sitting down with the star of that movie. And, you know, Gene talks about how he really wished he'd kind of had that crazy, you know, 70s disco life. And he kind of missed out on some of that in his youth. And I think that does explain why Gene Siskel loved movies like Breakin'. He loved, Gene loved musicals. He really, really did. He loved kind of cool, tough guys getting up there and dancing. He, I think that was something that kind of came from, you know, missing out on his childhood a little bit. So that definitely informed that kind of specific part of, of how he viewed movies. At the risk of spoiling future episodes, there was a Siskel and Ebert panic among other film critics who felt they were doing it wrong by mm. doing thumbs up and thumbs down on television. Will you tell us about what that panic was like? I think it was a, a generation of film critics who had grown up, who had come of age only uh, through written film criticism or sometimes through maybe a ver maybe through Dick Cavett or, or kind of a panel show where you go, go on a great length about a movie. I think, you know, the, the, the thumbs up, thumbs down panic among critics was this, this worry that we were reducing everything to a score. And once you do that, you're kind of cheapening the whole idea of criticism. And I remember, you know, I, I worked at entertainment weekly in the nineties and, and for a while, and, and I'm very aware of EW's history. And I know that when EW started in 1990 and they had those letter grades, people were freaking out in the same way. They're saying, how can you give a movie an F? Um, and, you know, I think people were having the same reaction in the mid eighties. How can you give a movie just a thumbs down? And I think what, you know, it was a shorthand. It was a convenient shorthand. I, I worked in a video store in the nineties. So if I said, well, Cisco neighbor gave it two thumbs up, people would say, Oh, okay, I'll, I'll rent it. I mean, without giving it much thought, but they, you know, they did give context to what, to their reviews in the show. I mean, they, it was only four minutes, but boy, it's a remarkable amount of context considered compared to people just creating a hashtag for a movie they hate now on Twitter. I mean, they did discuss it. There was, there was depth to their conversation, but yeah, a lot of critics were worried that this is the future of film criticism. And it's just, you get three minutes to talk about a movie and you basically say yes or no. And you're, you're creating a consumer guide rather than an actual kind of really work of art that's talking about another work of art. And I understand that. I yeah. understand the complaint. I understand the complaint, but it, it seemed at the time and it seems now so elitist, just incredibly mm -hmm. elitist. Yeah. And then look, I mean, one thing about Gene and Roger is they were Chicago guys, you know, the film industry was centered in LA back then. And the media industry wasn't centered entirely in New York, but people in New York, as someone who worked in New York media for almost 20 years, they do tend to think highly of themselves. And here were these two guys in Chicago who were newspaper guys who were not being published in the New Yorker, who were not being, you know, who were not thought of as like, at that point, as these highbrow critics who were giving thumbs up, thumbs down and people and millions of people were listening. So mm -hmm. I do think there was something a little bit kind of, I'm, I'm sure some people were off put by the fact that, you know, these were two Midwestern guys who they don't live in Hollywood. They don't live in New York. What do they know about movies or media? But they were, you know, they were Gene and Roger were just unstoppable forces in that regard. They had outflanked the famous New York film critics. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. What did they think about? I mean, do you do you have any? Did you find the answer to this? I don't know. What did? How did they feel about their own format? Were they were they advocates for it, or were they just sort of like this is what we have to work with? No, I think you know Roger. Roger did a great interview on Bob Costas in the early nineties where he talked about. He said, "Look, this is what we're doing is not 
high-end film criticism on the show. It's it's a movie discussion, and it's it is. You know, he never said this is a consumer guy, but that's they knew what it was. I mean, they were there to help steer people's opinions. You know, when when they started the show, they had this. The show's creator was a woman named Thea Flone, who really kind of invented this whole phenomenon. And you know, when they were doing the early episodes, which were going really badly, she would say, "Look, this is what people want to know. What's the movie about? Who's in it? And should they go see it?" And that is, there is a value to that. Um, and it might not be as valuable to people who want to sit and think about a movie for hours upon hours and discuss it for days and weeks. But for people who just want to know what to go see, there's a, there's a real value in that. And I think we see it now with Rotten Tomatoes where we all, I mean, even I'm ashamed to admit there's times where I'm, I'm sort of trying to decide if I want to see a kind of smaller indie movie that's gotten some good buzz. And I'm like, Oh, it's got 93%. Sure. I'll watch it. You know what I mean? I, it, that stuff is helpful. Yes, I, I, it's absolutely helpful. I always think of that when people, you know, when you see the, that 4,000 word back of the book, New Yorker essay about a book where they you right. know, mention like two things about the book and then they write this glittering essay and I go, you know what would also be helpful to tell me whether I should buy the book. Yes, or exactly. No, I know. <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down. And, yeah. and to the, to your point about like, yes, it was, you know, it was more of a consumer guy. Let me tell you, David and I growing up in Texas, the New Yorker was not coming to the house in our right. house the new york right. times was not coming to our house maybe right. the dallas morning news and the fort worth star telegram was coming to our house that was by far the smartest film criticism we had access to the end period yeah it yeah no i mean it was so very accessible. much yeah. smarter yeah no and not just accessible but smart but high yeah. middle brow right yep these people know about films they know about Truffaut. they know about scorsese and I always yeah. just found that so funny. Like we weren't reading Paul and Kale reviews. We have access to that. So no, I, I mean, I, I think the only other thing, the only other sort of entity that influenced how I think about movies other than Siskel and Ebert when I was a kid, I mean, I had, we had great movie critics where I grew up, but I mean, it was Siskel and Ebert and Mad Magazine were the two ways I learned about <laughs> movies and I learned about how to think about them. I mean, that was, those yeah. were really kind of the two. I loved reading the Philadelphia Inquirer's film critics and I read them every Friday. But, you know, it, as a really young kid, I mean, Mad and Siskel and Ebert, yeah, where else was I going to learn about movies and old movies and what, you know, and how you should talk about movies? There was there was no other avenue for that. Well, and it's the gateway, too. I mean, it, you're absolutely right about Mad Magazine. That's an incredible pull. But, the, but you know, like, I feel like I remember the moment in time in which Brian finally bought a Pauline Kale collection because of Roger Ebert's yes. like hectoring over the years. Like it's like you, <laughs> like they uh, that was like why they they were the gateway into yeah like deeper thought about film and 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 kind of anything else because that and the gateway itself was meaningful. I mean that's how we all we all as writers kind of think and, and, and function that way, right? It's like you can't answer every question for somebody, but you can give evidence that you have. You can introduce people to other ideas, and they they did a great job of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly the, the, I, there's a lot of Cisco Neighbor reviews that I remember, but the one I remember most vividly, but the, I, there's a lot of the horror movie ones I remember because I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies. But you know, they they dedicated at least two episodes to mentioning the Thin Blue Line, the Errol Morris documentary. I was maybe ten or eleven when that movie came out. There was no way I was going to know even what a documentary really was supposed to be at that point. And I, they talked about that movie in a way that I could not wait until I was you know, 13 to finally watch that movie. I mean, they made it seem, they made a documentary seem like the most exciting thing in the world. And that's incredibly valued. I mean, it's, it's that was really valuable then and it's very valuable to me now when I can still kind of find anyone who gets me enthused about something. And they really did that. For, that that made me remember of all things, and Brian, we've probably shared this memory. I, we didn't talk about it, but when their review of Hoop Dreams, 
when oh, they were dreams, absolutely because yeah. that was sort of in, in some ways the culmination of a joint a joint career of humanity in the way you've described because mm-hmm. there's if just to to hear those two guys in a vacuum talking about how moved they were by you know the mom getting her nursing certificate is meaningless yeah. but yeah. after but knowing yeah. Siskel and Ebert for two decades that was the maybe that was almost that that episode was almost as moving as hoop dreams itself was like just to see them react to it it was so incredible yeah and then we get into this in there in later episodes but hoop dreams also i mean aside from being a movie that i i do think they convinced most of america to go see i mean i think they were such they went on you know letterman and talked about it but when hoop dreams kind of got snubbed in the best documentary category that was the beginning of this kind of 90s period of gene and roger as as I think they would probably bristle at the word activists, but they, in the nineties, when they were at the height of their powers, I think they used it for the better good. And one of which, one of one was like getting people to see hoop dreams and getting people to be angry about the fact that the Academy had not recognized hoop dreams. And I, I love them for that. Cause I, that's one of my all time favorite movies. And I, I'm positive. The first time I heard about it was on Cisco and Ebert. And really that points to a very basic function of Cisco and Ebert again, for people like David and I growing up in Texas, we found out that hoop dreams existed. Right. On <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not absolutely. just that we should see it, but that it was a movie at all because there was like one David, one art house within 50 miles, two art houses within 50 miles. There was one art house that you could, and, and they ran one of those little thumb sized ads in the paper, at least when, by the time we were in high school, they did. But, the, but I guarantee every single time I went to that theater, it was because I sought it out on the recommendation of Gene Siskel or Roger Ebert, right? It's like they would talk about a movie. It wasn't at the multiplex. Let's see if it's at the art house. Mm-hmm. Yep. Totally. They were, they were great at that. I mean, stuff like, I mean, Brother from Another Planet, all these Lone Star, a lot of John Sales movies I would never have really sought out if it weren't for Gene and Roger. Yeah. Again and again, before Twitter was like telling you what to watch. Yeah. And then I think it's important to note that just like they, these were two middle-aged white guys, but I think also... There are so many black filmmakers and female filmmakers, especially in the 90s indie movement, that I would not have really heard about if it weren't for Gene and Roger. I don't know. If, I mean, their their embrace of Spike Lee was very early on in his career, but they were, you know, they. I have to say, they were also very open-minded about what kind of films excited them. They were not just, you know, they were they were middle-aged, but they were not, and they were a little middle-brow at times, but they were not middle-of-the-road, I'd say, when it came to movies. And that was also very important to, to sort of, to hear about movies, you know, um, you know, by Alice Anders or by other filmmakers that I may not have heard of otherwise. I, um, I love Siskel and Ebert as an artifact of 80s television in the sense of, wait, when is this show on? You know, like I don't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't always totally sure when it was going to air. Yeah. (laughs) When you went to college, you had to find out what time it was on there. Or like when you went on vacation, you had to figure out the channel or whatever. Like it was so difficult. It's like 530 on a Saturday afternoon, maybe a Sunday morning. It always felt like it was somewhere on the, somewhere in the world. And I wasn't sure where. Yeah, we, we taped it, I think, uh, because I know that I would get up every Sunday morning, I would dutifully go to church and I would behave because I knew if I came back, I could watch that week Siskel and Ebert and I could watch that week Saturday Night Live. And I would sit there in my church clothes watching Gene and Roger talk about, you know, RoboCop or whatever. So it was, I, don't, I have no idea when it was on in Philadelphia, but I know that I watched it basically at 11 o'clock every Sunday and Sunday morning. You argue in the pod, Brian, that Siskel and Ebert essentially won the argument about how to argue in public about things like the movies. Where do you see the Siskel and Ebert influence now? I mean, you. I, it's funny. I think I hear it now. I mean, there's so many 
podcasts about movies or TV or music where it's two people, especially now where a lot of friends are doing podcasts, you know, people who know one another, who have a built-in relationship. Um, I think that's, that's where I see a lot of their influence. And certainly on TV, I mean, you know, Crossfire would have become Crossfire, I think, no matter what. But I do think you would see a lot, in the, starting in the late 80s, early 90s, you would see a lot of debate shows where it felt less and less scripted and more just, okay, here's your talking points. You guys go at it and just wrap it up in five minutes, whatever your fight is about. And that's where I think Cisco and Ebert really came in. I mean, I mean, I, I interviewed Eric Ridehome, a creator of Pardon the Interruption. And he, you know, he said, yeah, this was definitely a show we talked about when creating Pardon the Interruption. And you can certainly see it in sports talk or in political talk. But now with podcasts, I mean, um, you know, I listen to podcasts about amusement parks where it's two friends, you know, arguing about an amusement park ride. And I think that's kind of where they're, where that influence is kind of spilled down to. I will say the one difference between most podcasts, they are formatically like Siskel and Ebert, including this one, but they don't have the frenemy status. They don't, yeah, they that's lack very the hard, angst. Yeah. It's hard to fake. It's hard to fake. Yeah. I'm not showing up on here. It's like, you know what? I want, I want to make David look bad today. Like that, right. that's not my goal. And I hope vice versa. Whereas with them, there was that, there was that danger. There was that edge to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard to fake, very hard to replicate, very hard. You know, if you don't have the built in, you know, almost a decade of pre TV show <laughs> rivalry that Gene and Roger had, it's, it's hard to put that on the air unless it's really there. But yeah, I, w- I would love for some of the shows to have a little more of that element, but I think that's also just, proves how singular Gene and Roger were. I hate to be reductionist about it, but as we're saying goodbye, what do you think yourself, do you think of yourself as more of a Saturday Night Fever guy or a 2001 guy? <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I, you know, what a I, choice. Really do, I do love both movies, but I, I mean, John Travolta is basically, I mean, I have two problematic movie stars whom I've loved my whole life. It's Tom Cruise and John Travolta and, but boy, I, I do love John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever. I mean, I love both those movies, but if, if it was a weekend night and I was going to the New Beverly or something to see an old movie, I would love to see Saturday Night Fever in a theater <laughs> and listen to that music. I mean, look, one's got the Bee Gees, one doesn't. And that ultimately <laughs> pushes it over the edge. When you have How Deep Is Your Love, you know, that's, that's one of the greatest songs of all time. Now, if the Bee Gees had wound up in 2001, I would like to watch that fan-made cut. If someone's oh. got that, that would be very interesting to me. I um before we go, I also want to say, David, I think we need more Siskel and Ebert in the world, maybe especially mm-hmm. in the world of TV criticism, you know, because I look at TV criticism now and there's a lot of here's what the showrunner auteur was trying to do. Uh, here's a list of the Easter eggs. Here's the list of the how it fits into the Marvel cinematic TV universe. You know what I want? Should I watch the show? Thumbs yeah. up. Thumbs down. Just tell me, do I need to invest the nine or 10 hours it's going to take me to, to pull through this thing? I, I actually think you could argue we need more of the bottom lineness of Siskel and Ebert now in our very wised up world of criticism. I, I, I mean, I agree. And I think actually that's one of the biggest digs against Pitchfork is like for all Pitchforks, you know, and I've been following it for 15, 20 years. They do give a number grade at the end. I mean, you can just go, what, this get eight, eight or higher, just get best new music. And I know that drives some people crazy with how reductive it is. But, you know, for music reviews, at least there, there are still those consumer guides. And yeah, I think there could be more of that for TV, especially. All right. This was so much fun, Brian. The pod is Gene and Roger. How many episodes of this are we doing? Uh, eight episodes, eight episodes. So eight episodes. about a half hour each. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of fun guests and it was, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And uh, if you, if you were a Cisco Ebert fan, I have tried to find some of the best, you know, deep cut 
arguments. And if you are new to Siskel and Ebert, I'm hoping you will sort of learn why they have such a huge effect over people like the three of us still all these years later. And we were joking before we came on here that a lot of guys in New York in the early aughts were passing around Neil Strauss's The Game to one another. David and I were <laughs> passing around Roger Ebert's little movie glossary. Oh, this is the, the kind of guys we were. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it's such a good. I mean, it 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 informed everything that we do. I mean, it's so weird. We do this podcast and we keep coming back and sort of re-realizing the the sources that made us the sort of writers and thinkers and podcasters and everything else we are today. But, um, but Brian, your podcast is just so invaluable, man. I mean, I, I can't I cannot wait to finish it out. And I'm just oh, thank so you, gra- so grateful for for you coming on the show and talking to us. Oh no, I'm, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And by the way, it's on the it's it's called Gene and Roger. It's on the Big Picture Podcast feed. Yes, it's part it's part yes. of it, on, on part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Um, so go check it out there. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. Yeah. Last Friday's headline about Pete Polar Bear Alonzo winning his second straight home run derby was Bears repeating. (laughs) Today's headline comes from Andrew Joe Potter. It's from the Toronto Star, David. It's about the Milwaukee Bucks winning the NBA Finals after finishing off the Phoenix Suns in Game 6. You might say that Giannis Attentacumpo is the proverbial man in the news. He's getting a lot of press attention. What was the Toronto Star's strained pun headline? Wow. Giannis. Yeah. I'll give you a key word. Does it have to helpful. be? Is Giannis in it? Or is it, no. is it a Greek? Is it a uh, buck Greek? It's actually the word deer. Deer. Deer is where you want to start here. Deer in spotlight? Mm, really close. Deer in. Deer in. Mm. Headlights, dear in, uh, dear in. So it's the it's the press, a lot of attention. Dear in headlines, dear in headlines, dear in headlines. That's great. Dear in the headlines. I think that's the first one we've actually had that used the word headline <laughs> in the strained pun headline. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. Big week on the press box next week, David. We got Leon Nafak here to talk about fiasco and Benghazi. And all kinds of things about long form podcasting, plus more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>